Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Midweek Roundup, we're going to be covering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days. And as we do each week, for those of you who are new, we take our questions uh, that we answer here on the Roundup from our newsletter that comes out on Monday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern. That newsletter called All the SMIE News Fit to Share uh, is in your inboxes at 9 a.m. Eastern if you're uh, subscribing through our news uh, through our website and that is smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. You'll be able to subscribe directly to our newsletter there. Alternately, if you are a heavy LinkedIn user, uh, you can get the, uh, the LinkedIn version of that newsletter uh, direct, to your, uh, direct to your LinkedIn feed um, Mondays at about 8.30 a.m., so about a half hour before the website folks get theirs in their inbox. So very easy to do, uh, subscribe, and we, we cover both social media and international education news stories and oftentimes where those overlap in the newsletter and focus primarily on the international ed stories for the midweek roundup here on Wednesday afternoons. And again, we're live on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. So we're really grateful that you're with us uh, for this journey this week as we cover three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days. First question of the day, is U.S. higher education viewed globally as influential as it used to be? And this is a question that I often get asked in, in conversation with particularly folks that are newer to the profession and or from parts of the world where um, they, they have uh, only become active on the international stage uh, on the university levels uh, uh, in recent years. And the challenge with this answering this question is uh, the easy answer is to say, well, it's influential, certainly. Is it as influential? Uh, perhaps not as much. And is that a bad thing necessarily? And I will say no to that. Uh, not a bad thing necessarily that we're less influential. And the, the question of the, why this question is getting asked is there are a couple of news stories this week that uh, fed, feed into this narrative that, well, the U.S. is in decline and, uh, and it isn't taken as seriously any, as, as it was anymore, that other universities and other countries are becoming um, more uh, influential and more recognized and in the rankings and all of these wonderful things. And there's going to be truth to that uh, in, in, in the, just the reality of rankings and the reality of um, how, those, uh, how those, those institutions are geared uh, to, to not just rank the same old folks at the top every year. And uh, there's, they, there's jockeying for position, and we see that internally in the United States. So with uh, U.S. News and World Report, there's always, always scandals going on about people who fudge their numbers and how that's impacted uh, in, in the vain attempt to impact their institution's rankings. Uh, people have lost their jobs. People have gone to jail uh, for doing things like that. Uh, and rankings are an, an unfortunate uh, reality in higher education, uh, both in the United States and in the world. Uh, and as you see, there are many different ranking organizations out there. You've got, obviously, the U.S. side with U.S. News, but you've got Times Higher Ed, you've got uh, QS, you've got Shanghai Rankings. And each, even within each of those groups, those organizations, they have different levels of rankings that they put out. Uh, new impact rankings or most impact rankings and 
uh, new age in university rankings and regional, kind of like what the U.S. does with the U.S. News. They have the best national institutions, uh, then best liberal art, national liberal arts, then regional liberal arts, regional state universities. So there's all sorts of subcategories that you can break uh, these rankings out into. But the big ones are uh, the, what the universities around the world compete, compete for, higher rankings. And the, when answering this kind of a question, you look at, is the U.S. higher education viewed globally as influential as it was, once was? And part of that is our, the question of, uh, are we losing our preeminence? Uh, and that was an Inside Higher Ed article this past week that had, uh, had, a, had a lot of... Um, uh, interesting, uh, kind, of, uh, kind of meandered around for a bit, but talked. To, uh, it started with a, a, a variety of clickbait kind of tr uh, titles and headlines that you hear uh, that uh, oftentimes are uh, part of what's uh, part of what gets eyes eyeballs on on articles or rankings or whatever it may be. Uh, but one of the uh, the myths, his uh, his point in the article was that some of the um, some of the reasons why, and this was an article saying that the U.S. is losing its uh, touch uh, necessarily in the world, uh, it's not as influential. And part of that is uh, he says some myths that aren't wholly wrong. Uh, that, for example, a college education doesn't guarantee a middle class standard of living. A college degree doesn't necessarily certify learning. Uh, students from low-income backgrounds are right to worry about college's return on investment. Uh, so that is really, I think, um, that those are things in the United States. Certainly, we've these are we've we've seen cracks in those myths. That uh, perhaps there is is some truth to those. He talks about uh, when he talks about extending that internationally. Uh, the myth of U.S. research universities are undeniably the best in the world, and that. The rea he says the reality is universities are U.S. universities are struggling to maintain their preeminence in face of mounting foreign competition, and that competition is I think at the heart of what we're talking about today with regard to myths. He also um, uh, that's the main myth that he's talking about. And he talks about how econ economies have changed over the years and how that impacts nation states and how uh, graduate programs um, that. Uh, that are uh, graduate programs that have been top are, are now losing losing pace in some areas. Uh, that, that and it, one article he points to one reason he points to is a recent essay in Forbes pointed out that three quarters of the 335 U.S. universities in the global top 2,000 have seen their rankings decline, and that's okay. Uh, and I, I will say that uh, again, it's it's okay that U.S. institutions rankings. Uh, aren't as high as they once were. And why is that? Uh, this, I have the same art reasoning here at, that I, uh, in my response, that I uh, also give to people when they say, oh, the U.S. it's losing its market share and oh, the international student race and uh, just not as competitive as we used to be. And the reason why, uh, in, the, um, in, in answering both questions, for both for why rankings are slipping for some uh, top U.S. research universities and why U.S. is losing market share, is it's a more competitive marketplace uh, than it once was. Uh, and that we were, at one point, it was the U.S., uh, the Brits, and the Aussies, uh, that were the only ones who cared about rankings. And we dominated, all, all three of those countries dominated the top, top lists of uh, university rankings worldwide. Uh, U.S. still does dominate, uh, and eight of the top ten are still U.S. institutions. 
Um, when you go further down, you might not see as many uh, as you might once have seen. But you see also in these, um, in these stories that we're seeing today, uh, covering today about why the U.S. is losing preeminence, you see, in, since, the, since the, let's just say since 2000, the United States had a little over 500,000 international students in the year 2000 uh, that were attending its universities. Uh, since 2000, our numbers have doubled. Uh, we are over, been over a million since 19, 2019, 2018 even. Uh, so a little dip because uh, of COVID and the pandemic in terms of enrolled students in the U.S. But uh, overall, the CVS by the numbers reports still reflect over a million students from outside the United States studying in the U.S. Uh, no other country has more than 600,000 right now. So uh, for the longest time, the UK was, had, has been in number two and is in a solid number two position again. And they were at about 500,000 themselves uh, in the last few years. And they bumped it up to uh, 600,000 uh, during the pandemic. They've been particularly good and uh, lucky in terms of the political dynamics in other countries, other destination markets that have not led to return of students. They've, uh, they've benefited greatly from uh, what's happened during the pandemic. Uh, in terms of enrollments. So the competition for international students has grown uh, as institutions around the world see international students as uh, primarily a financial boost to their institutions, but also uh, the obvious uh, cultural and, and uh, demographic benefits that brings to your domestic students by exposing them to students from all over the world and helping them prepare themselves for uh, the world outside uh, academia. Uh, and that competition is only, only drives people to be better. Uh, and not everybody can be the best, and that's clear. And, but there are, there's going to be give and take in these rankings, depending on how much uh, weight individual institutions put on them in terms of how much they're going to be increasing their uh, research dollars that they're trying to bring in or uh, trying to match their or uh, impact certain ranking categories uh, to improve their status. So. Uh, the same goes for enrollments of international students. You look at what's happened. Uh, you see in, uh, in that, say, in, since the late 90s, when the U.S. had close to a third of all international students that were studying outside their country were coming to the U.S. back in the 90s. Uh, that number is down to 20% these days. So in that 20, 25-year period, you've seen uh, a decline uh, in the overall market share, the pie, the global student mobility pie, the U.S.'s share has gone down to from close to a third to only a fifth. And people are worried. But the reality is our numbers have doubled in that time as well, more than doubled in that 25-year period. So you see uh, what, is, what happens uh, in a, doesn't mean you're, you're le less of a quality destination, that your institutions are are less attractive or, uh, to be honest, though the U.S. is still going to be the, the, the number one country for the foreseeable future because of its uh, quality institutions across the board. And we have so many more of them than any other country uh, in terms of quality institutions that have history, that have longevity, that have uh, quality reputations and quality programs uh, and uh, dominate rankings across the world. Yes, we're going to be not be, always be the top 10 or top five in, in every uh, category. But uh, we, we see in many categories, the U.S. is, uh, as, a, as its reputation may have taken certain hits uh, politically over the years, our institutions have largely uh, sustained themselves uh, in, in terms of their overall quality. And competition isn't a bad thing. I mean, frankly, it helps drive some institutions onto greater heights. It's certainly for countries that are 
coordinated in their approach to international education. You've seen great strides being made in Canada in the last 10 years, last five years especially, uh, becoming a much more open and welcoming place for immigrants, and that translates to students uh, in classrooms uh, from overseas when there are clear paths to citizenship and permanent residency and to work, especially work. Uh, and that drives uh, interest no matter where you are in the world. Uh, if you're looking to study outside your home country, you want to make sure that your experience is going to be a worthwhile one, that it's going to have a return on investment for you, and that it's going to lead you to a career uh, in a place uh, at a level that is where you think you should be. And that's what uh, higher education is meant to do, and particularly international higher ed. Uh, you have uh, dreams of mil millions of students every year uh, being fulfilled or crushed, depending on uh, their choices and where they go and the experiences they have. So, what I what I see in this in this uh, in answering this question, particularly from this article in Inside Higher Ed, is that yes, um, it's not as influential as it once was because it's a multilateral world now, and it's not or a bipolar world. It wasn't it was a bipolar world at one point. Uh, uh, U.S. versus Soviet Union when they collapsed and uh, others filled the vacuum was the U.S. for uh, for a long time was was the predominant uh, has been the predominant economy and then with the rise of China uh, and BRICS countries uh, coming in together and acting together uh, you see changes in dynamics and that that's only natural uh, so but in terms of the top rankings uh, yes there have been slippages uh, that uh, the reality is though uh, that's okay uh, more quality institutions across the board rises, uh, raises the stakes for everybody and raises the, uh, the competition level, and that's not a bad thing. So uh, the other part of this question it will answer in the second area or second, uh, second question of the day, and that is how should you approach new student markets? The other side of that question is um, uh, when one of the reasons uh, potentially the U.S. is not as dominant as it once was, is it has become over-focused on two markets, India and China in particular, which account for uh, basically 50% of all international students in the United States and some countries, those two, country, those two nationalities uh, represent 65 to 70%. Uh, but that's the, that's the point, I think, is it's not just the U.S. It's uh, actually most of the top destinations, uh, destination markets for international students, China and India, are the two uh, two countries that will lead the way. Now, what's, uh, what that, when you talk about new markets, we know in the U.S., and this, uh, anyone who's been in international admissions for more than a minute already knows that, that fact, India and China dominate U.S. Uh, international student numbers. But what is also important to know is, uh, and everyone knows once you've been in it for a minute, is you need to diversify where your students are coming from. The problem is uh, there is no one other country, and nor there, should there be just one other country that's going to be another, the next India or the next China. The sheer demographics will tell you that, is that the, the populations around the world uh, of, of the top, top countries are not there uh, yet. Uh, we've seen evolutions in the Chinese, undergrad, Chinese uh, student populations coming to the United States. Uh, we've seen that go from almost exclusively graduate in the 90s and early 2000s into now more undergraduates than graduate students in the United States from China, uh, even though the undergrad numbers have been dropping uh, over the last four or five years. 
but you now you see in India, India used to be almost exclusively grad. Uh, undergrad numbers have been starting to rise, not at the uh, sh uh, sheer uh, scale that the Chinese undergraduate numbers were, were rising, but you, you're going to see more Indian undergraduates looking at the United States. And under, undergraduates either direct entry from high school or transfers as more uh, dual degrees or twinning programs or two plus twos or uh, two plus one plus ones uh, pop up on the radar. So in India, in particular, as that country begins to open up more to international education and itself wanting to become a destination. Uh, but one of the key questions that I think uh, a lot of institutions, when, when, I get, when I'm working with them trying to develop, hey, where, are, where should we be going that we aren't now? Or where should we be recruiting or focusing attention that we're not doing right now? And I always look, there's a balance, right? There's a, you do need to know where the, where the students are. Uh, in terms of numbers, uh, the numbers that are coming to the United States, there's kind of layers. You, you need to know first how, what countries are sending the most students outside their home country to begin with. Then you can get that from Project Atlas and other, other countries' data like that. Then you look at, okay, where, where are the students coming uh, from to the United States and where are some countries that maybe are coming in numbers that we're not getting a lion, uh, our, our share of. Then you also look institutionally, where have our international students come? And if they have been from just China and India, then yeah, it, that's, that's your flashing red sign saying diversify, diversify. Because if you don't, then you're, 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 all your eggs are in one or two baskets, and that's a dangerous thing internationally for an institution. Um, had, had the pleasure of working at an institution where uh, they had uh, probably 15% international students, but 80% of those, uh, those students, the international students they had, were from three countries. And within the first year of being at that institution, all three of those markets collapsed nearly completely. Uh, one, because a scholarship program got rolled away, uh, taken away from, uh, from, for students eligible to come to our institution. Uh, and in two other countries, English language and non-immigrant intent uh, were, not, were not met uh, by, in the eyes of the consular officers after some transfer outs and, a, and some bad history there, and those two markets collapsed. And that led to significant enrollment declines uh, that uh, we had no control over, basically, in terms of the, what was going on at the time. But for institutions that have significant numbers and have, yeah, you can have one or two that are 20%, maybe even 30% if you're, if you're pushing it, but uh, of your international students, but you want to have a good supply of other other countries that are represented in your top 10 that are more than double digits uh, if you're a smaller institution or into the hundreds if you're more than two two countries that are in double digits if you're a 20,000 uh, student institution. So you really want to look at uh, diversifying as much as possible. How you do that is is really the trick. And our, our colleagues over at NTED uh, make, uh, make the point that when you're entering into new markets, uh, part one of the challenges that most institutions have is figuring out what your benchmarks are going to be. What do you really need to do year one? What do you what, what's possible year two, and uh, where should you be moving uh, in in the longer term? And and knowing that when you enter a new market, it's not going to be, hey, we're here, come and join us, and in the next year you have 50 new students from that country. That's not a reality that most institutions have. Uh, frankly, you need to work for it. And in order to do that, 
you really need to be thinking longer term about uh, investment in a market, uh, what that looks like, how messaging needs to be different for particular uh, in from market to market, uh, doing a market analysis uh, on what sells in a particular market. Part of that is knowing, hey, where are the skills shortages in those countries that you're going into that uh, are perhaps, and you have programs that would match some of those needs that they have. Uh, if the, for students that might be looking to go home after they're done. If for those that are, might be looking to stay, you're looking about, okay, where, what are programs that we have that they might be interested in with that we know in the U.S., they're going to be good likelihood of, of, of opportunities for significant job prospects for those students uh, at our institution when they graduate. So and the, it, part of it is, is, is just knowing where to start and setting those, as our Inted friends call it, the benchmarks and monitoring your progress in a new market. Uh, it's everything from uh, and identifying first off what your key performance indicators are going to be in each market uh, at certain different certain uh, times during the uh, during the, during your uh, evolution of your relationship with that country. It's how are you getting into that market? Is it uh, in country companies and agencies you're working with? Is it uh, social media campaigns and social listening that you're doing? Uh, is it uh, country-specific website, microsites that you might be putting in place, like for China, if you're going to be truly efficient in the Chinese market, having local, local language content, locally hosted content, uh, that's, in, that's an important piece. Uh, understanding what your email conversion rates, uh, open rates are going to be, click-through rates are going to be, uh, the downloads you're having, the attendance at events that you have virtually in person, whatever it might be. Uh, knowing your knowing your funnel and knowing how students should be uh, should be coming uh, through that at, from your overall perspective from your international admissions but then trying to establish what be some good benchmarks for that country and so a great article that uh, from Intet that's in the newsletter this week and I certainly encourage you to check that out uh, and not to ignore those things that, uh, those bigger picture questions as you market to students particularly in new markets that you're entering into uh, is understanding what their needs are, uh, why they're looking out to, to come to the U.S., uh, why they are, are there more push factors or pull factors that are uh, at, uh, looking, sending them uh, overseas for study. Uh, is it uh, labor, there's no places in higher ed, uh, enough, enough quality places at quality institutions in higher education in their home country that are looking overseas, or is it because surely they, they, have, they have money, they have talents, they want to uh, explore uh, other countries? Uh, that that's important to know what those are. So I think um, knowing the skills, uh, uh, part of that, uh, again, knowing your markets is knowing the skills uh, gaps that exist uh, at, in those home countries and understanding, uh, you can get a lot of that data actually from uh, U.S. Commercial Service uh, for U.S. institutions looking to go work in particular markets. Uh, you obviously can get that fairly easily to know what those skills gaps are here in the United States. There's a great ISIF Monitor uh, article on that very, very fact, um, knowing where, uh, what, what fields are going to be the most uh, in demand in the coming years, and uh, knowing that healthcare in the U.S. is an area that there is huge demand for, uh, for, uh, for, for, for uh, qualified candidates that there aren't enough to fill right now. So you see a lot of, um, a lot of really great resources. I think it's important to. To get a, get your hands on and not just look and say, oh, I haven't been there yet. I want go. I want to go to that country, uh, or look at um, look at the greater uh, <laughs> look at a map, throw a dart uh, dart into into a map and see where it lands. And there you go, or pin the tail on the country. 
you don't want to be taking that random approach. You need to be uh, data-driven in terms of why you go where you want to go. And uh, you should be able to back that up. And certainly uh, when you have to argue for funds uh, to recruit in a new country that you haven't been to before, uh, how are you going to do that if you don't have the, uh, uh, the data to back it up? Uh, and this is, this is something that uh, the Intent folks certainly make the case. I, I certainly have been preaching that uh, since I've been doing consulting, even when I was on the institutional side. you got to have the data to back up your, your reasoning, in particular if you're going to be spending six figures on an international recruitment budget every year. Uh, that's something that you want to have uh, nailed down and be confident in your rationale and, and then be able to live and die with the consequences. So there's a lot involved uh, in doing your research, doing your homework, setting up your benchmarks, and then making sure you're, you're following through. Uh, working with an institution that j that's taken on some new vendors um, to help uh, drive uh, interest because um, they hadn't been active internationally in the past. And uh, one, of the, the, one of the things that was done, contracts were signed uh, and uh, leads started to come in, but they didn't really have process to get them into their systems. It was all manual. It was, uh, the, and the message, the comp flow wasn't really good, uh, that they, um, they had to really focus attention on uh, where they hadn't done before. They hadn't developed an international uh, communication plan for students at the undergraduate grad levels. That it, the need was there. Uh, we, uh, the decision was made to sign a contract and not really be ready for it on the back end. Uh, that, yeah, you can send us all the leads you want, but the reality is we didn't know what we were going to do with them. So the, uh, the issues are really uh, being, uh, being thorough with why you do what you do and who you choose to do business with. But also, once you've made those decisions, have the, have the necessary internal mecha mechanisms in place to respond and to uh, be timely in, in communicating with students and to have content that's relevant for them. That's all one-on-one -on -one stuff uh, in international admissions and any type of marketing efforts, uh, but this is especially keen in when you're entering into a new market. Otherwise, that's wasted effort. So let's move on to our third and final question of the day, and that is, is China self-isolating uh, to the detriment of its international education goals? And we've, for those of you who followed the roundup for a while, you know we've been talking about China and the soft power initiatives they've been rolling out through the BRI, Belt and Road Initiative, in South and East Asia, through to Africa, and even into Europe these days, that are planned specifically to raise China's uh, uh, level of prominence uh, with countries around the world uh, through financial investments and in infrastructure and in universities and schools and all of these other other high-import, high high-value uh, uh, topics, uh, transportation as well. And you see one of those goals has been to increase China's uh, reputation as a destination for international students. And we've seen uh, in 20 years ago when we looked at the top, top receiving students, top countries, destination markets for international students, China wasn't even in the top 20. Uh, as of pre-pandemic, they were up to number three and pushing the UK hard for number two. Uh, but they've fallen away now uh, because of the pandemic, though, uh, though they haven't released new international student numbers for uh, since 2019. Uh, you see what's happened in China. Um, we've seen a lot of things develop over the last year. Last summer, we saw uh, new laws that were put in place that were designed to really remove uh, outside influence on its uh, population. 
uh, where um, the tutoring industry that had grown up significantly uh, was severely curtailed, that the government uh, put the halts and uh, all halt on a lot of um, uh, a lot of uh, businesses that were um, basically in their eyes too profitable uh, and the tutoring industry was one of those a lot of uh, prominent businesses uh, Alibaba and others have had to have lost significant revenue uh, as a result of government policy changes um, on the tutoring side education side you see uh, places like New Oriental uh, largest single international education company in China uh, with uh, tutoring and uh, agents and all, all sorts of educational programs. Uh, they laid off, I think it was 16,000 people at one point uh, from their from their enclosed number of outlets across the country. Uh, you've seen um, uh, tutors that were teaching English to uh, Chinese students uh, for as young as four, five, five years old up, up through teenage years. Uh, tutoring them English virtually uh, that uh, unless they were the after the law was changed last summer unless you were physically in China uh, where you could be a little bit more under their control uh, you couldn't do that anymore you couldn't teach uh, English to Chinese students if you were not living in China so China's been certainly uh, pulling back and uh, we certainly seen during the pandemic how much they've pulled back uh, and uh, how they are still, uh, as most of the rest of the world has opened back up and uh, tra uh, tr uh, international trade is, is flowing regularly again and or as regular as it can be with supply chain issues, you've seen travel being a lot easier, but not in China uh, or coming out of China or getting into China. Uh, there's now there's still a two-week quarantine required for anyone, citizen or not, that goes into China. Uh, that, uh, that's at your own cost. Um, and if you've followed any of the news with the Shanghai lockdowns and what those have looked at, looked like for more than a month, six weeks, almost two months now, those have been horror stories about what you're hearing by conditions, about conditions there. You've seen uh, international schools, their teachers have been, international teachers have been evacuated uh, from the country. Other students have tried to leave from, from universities but haven't been able to, haven't been let out. Um, so there's real challenges. There have been some, for some reason, uh, there have been students have been trying to get back in because they want to finish their degrees, that's the reason, uh, from India, from Pakistan, from Sri Lanka, from all over South and East Asia and Africa, have been trying to get back into China to, uh, to continue their studies. They've been shut out. Only now there are small, small groups of maybe 200 at a time. And when you're talking about a country like India, they had 20,000 students studying in China before the pandemic that are trying to get back in. 100, 200 at a time, it's going to take forever for them to get back in. For Sri Lanka, same thing. They, they're, they've got a, a seven, Pakistan has 7,000. They're only going to be let in 200 at a time. So we're talking about some real restraint. And who, who knows what you're going to be getting, get, getting into if you do go back right now, because that country, that zero to COVID tolerance policy, is having significant negative impacts. And it's even impacting not, not just the, the, the international students that are already there, it's impacting Chinese students that are, are now going, well, I don't want to go to university here in China now if, if the country's still going to be doing this, lock, this crazy lockdown sc uh, schedule and taking that mindset when all the rest of the world is opening up. I want to get out of here. I'm going to go overseas. So there are now going to be a whole group of Chinese students that certainly have been exploring the option, whether they actually go through with it or not. They've been exploring since these extra severe lockdowns have been happening, whether they want to go overseas. So China is not doing itself any favors right now when it comes to international education. Certainly it's damaging its economy almost irrevocably, uh, the way it's shut down certain industries in certain cities, and that's affecting global supply chain as well. And there's... 
the realities on the ground really don't reflect in China what's happening in the rest of the world. Uh, and that's, uh, that's, that's to their detriment, unfortunately. Uh, the NASA conference coming up in Denver in a couple weeks, uh, there's usually, hmm, there are 10,000 people, 9,000, 10,000 people pre-pandemic that would come to this event. Uh, they're only going to be pulling about 6,000 right now. They're still under 6,000 registrants and very few from China, uh, if at any, when they might have 1,000 coming from China in the past, maybe 10, 15, 20, 30, maybe, and that's probably because they have residences outside that are actually coming to the conference this year. Uh, I don't know if there'll be a China pavilion. I don't think so. Uh, but there's some really interesting uh, developments in China that are, are really hurting them in the long run when it comes to their international reputation. So uh, not quite as bad as Russia, but certainly uh, it's, uh, it's, it's getting there. Uh, and they're doing some, doing some significant damage. But we'll see what, how long that will continue. Uh, that's all we have for you this week on the Midweek Roundup. We really appreciate you joining us and being a part of the conversation. Uh, we'll be getting the links to uh, that were talked about in all these stories here today. We'll be putting those up uh, on the Facebook and LinkedIn uh, pages related to this site, uh, to this uh, live chat. So until next time, we wish you the very best and have a great day.